The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 145 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own, not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or held in the past United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Listen, folks, every day there's a new headline of a company falling victim to a data breach. My friends in Hollywood tell me that TV show writers can't outpace the cybersecurity news cycle. And then we have the battle between TikTok, TikTok and the White House, which consumer data protection is at the heart of. Consumers have become numb to the news of huge data breaches, and quite frankly, there appears to be a, lot, a lack of trust. That being said, consumers still value privacy and has become a major concern of consumers around the globe. Last week on episode number 144 of Task Force 7 Radio, we had the president and CEO of Spirion, Mr. Kevin Coppins, on the show to break down the culture of data security, why it's so hard for companies to do the right thing by consumers, and what companies can do to build better bridges between corporate internal stakeholders and executive decision makers. Coppins also talked about why data compliance is so difficult for organizations to navigate, how the regulatory landscape changed over the last few years, and what regulations he thinks executives should be paying attention to that they're not today. Don't miss everything he had to say on episode number 144 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed it, don't sweat it, folks. We're on 11 different playback mediums. You can find this everywhere. Just go to your favorite playback medium. That's re-envisioning how we, how we approach data security on last week's episode. That's episode number 144 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, I'm excited about our guest tonight. We got another tier one guest. We have the chief security officer and co-founder of Area One Security, Mr. Blake Darshay. Blake started his career at the National Security Agency in the field of computer network operations. As a computer network exploitation analyst at the NSA, Blake quickly became a key member of the team after successfully penetrating the networks of adversaries developing weapons of mass destruction. At the NSA, Blake worked on counterintelligence threats affecting a variety of organizations and learned a variety of skills, including computer network operations, vulnerability exploitation analysis, Network, network analysis, malware analysis, host intrusion analysis. After receiving numerous awards, he migrated to the computer network defense community. And then in 2012, Blake left the government and became one of the founding members of CrowdStrike Services Organization. He helped lead the charge to build CrowdStrike Services from the ground up. And at CrowdStrike, Blake performed a variety of roles, including performing malware analysis, incident response, 
rapid product prototyping and fielding, and Fidelity security clearances issues. In totality, Blake has experience of both insider and espionage-related threats in addition to large-scale destructive attacks. And then in 2014, Blake founded Area One Security to identify sophisticated nation-state-sponsored cyber threats before they compromise enterprise organizations. It's my pleasure to introduce Chief Security Officer and co-founder of Area One Security, Mr. Blake Darshay. Blake, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, brother. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's good to have you on the show. I've been tracking Area One for a while. I cannot talk to anyone in the investment community that doesn't go, hey, have you heard of Area One? I'm like, yeah, I, I, know, I know them. Jeez, man, you're all over the place right now. Congrats. Oh, thanks so much, Andy. Well, cool, man. Hey, there was a, I want to get right into it, man. There was a recent Black Hat survey that found 70% of cybersecurity professionals said they believe they'll have to respond to a major security breach in their own organizations in the coming year. And the majority also said they don't have sufficient security staff or enough budget to secure their enterprises against the current threats. So that means if I get, if I get it right, not enough staff, not enough cash, how should CISO set priorities for their organization? Yeah, so I, I mean, I do think that that's right. It's a difficult uh, resource environment between cash and staff out there. You know, I like to set priorities based on, you know, the threat landscape of your organization, right? So assess, you know, what, what it is you're trying to protect, where, where your really valuable data is, and then, you know, set priorities accordingly. Look to, you know, bolster security in those areas. Typically, this is, you know, IAM, email security, firewalls, things of that nature. And, you know, I think oftentimes today, a lot of IAM stuff in particular ends up getting overlooked and people end up focusing, you know, on maybe firewalls where identity turns out to be today's firewall. Yeah, man. And look, you know, that's probably no more prevalent than now with everything going on with COVID. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the workforce is now, the office, office space is now at the, at the home, right? So you've gone from protecting, you know, maybe 100 offices to 100,000 offices, right? <laughs> Depending on the size of your company. Um, but then the, the FBI, you know, warned earlier this year about the rise in BEC, right? Business email compromise schemes related to COVID. Uh, what is business email compromise and, and how does it work? And how's that different from just regular phishing? Yeah, so, you know, the word business email compromise or the term is, is a little misleading. You know, it often it implies that the email has been compromised when in fact that that's not always the case. So what we tend to see is, you know, business email compromise, as it's called, is a form of identity deception. And with identity deception, the attacker is trying to just impersonate someone else and get that person they're trying to attack to take some sort of action on that user's behalf. So maybe they're trying to say, hey, I need some gift cards or, hey, I need uh, this invoice paid. Maybe they found an invoice template on the internet and they're using that invoice template to try to invoice your company for uh, made up invoices effectively, right? And so we see everything in the gamut of this area from very basic rudimentary to I need gift cards to very sophisticated attacks where an attacker will spend hours hacking different organizations trying to set up a multi uh, hop attack in order to impersonate an organization and then try to move money out of that organization. Well, give me the worst example. Come on, give me something. Give me what's the, what's the biggest, baddest thing you've seen? I mean, like money, right? How, how these bad actors are exploiting COVID. I mean, what's the funnest, trickiest from a researcher's perspective, right? Like when you're looking at it going, oh, that was pretty cool. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's kind of different levels levels of that, right? So if you're interested in more technical research or in the more, you know, business uh, impacting, you know, we look at it as what is the total impact of the customer and what are the damages, right? And so obviously if you know you have a $200 million attack and you're able to stop a $200 million attack, that's pretty significant and that's where you want to be able to do. On the other hand, sometimes very technical attacks are interesting uh, in the way, you know, attackers are impersonating Zoom today uh, and WebEx and the attackers, you know, are very clever in the way they try to impersonate these companies really deceiving you and making you believe that these are legitimate senders when in fact it's an attacker and they, you know, bypass DMARC by using lookalike domain names that are almost impossible sometimes to tell uh, if they're good or bad. I had a case a couple years ago where the Russian GRU was impersonating Westinghouse and they had changed the word Westinghouse with a G to a Q. And I spent about an hour looking at this as a trained security practitioner trying to figure out how this worked only to realize that the G had been transposed to a Q. We as humans tend to just, you know, we just correct these mistakes with our eye and don't really recognize them. Yeah, man. It's, it's amazing how much research on the criminal side of things has gone into this, right. To be effective and they're running businesses too, right. In their mind. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. How else has the business, you know, challenges of the pandemic and the remote workforce shift impacted or, you know, or increased email security challenges? Yeah. So I think a lot of organizations, you know, for a lot of things, they might not have emailed before. They might've been sitting in the same office and they might've just talked to each other. So what we've seen with the pandemic is all of a sudden, a lot of things have gone over email and there's been a huge uptick in, you know, BEC attacks and other forms of attacks where you can't just easily validate who sent a request to you and you were able to validate that in the past. And so I think that that's really where the change out of the office has occurred. You know, it's just a lot more difficult to call someone's cell phone number and try to get them on the line versus talking to the person next to you. Yeah, man, it's, uh, you know, and this is where like, you know, email notification from SaaS providers, you know, become really interesting attack vectors where, you know, they may not go through your own security defenses. And so you can get, you know, an, an email in your inbox from a SaaS provider that's sending you a link that maybe, you know, maybe something in the HR space, for instance, right? Like a resume or something through some of those providers. Um, you know, how does, you know, how can an organization still secure themselves um, in either the scenario where one or more of their partners gets fished? Or if, you know, the SaaS provider is kind of like almost acting as a bypass to your email defenses. Yeah, so th- those tend to be the most difficult types of attacks to detect, right? Because the, you're, you have a basically a trusted third party is what you're saying, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this is where you really need to go beyond the email authentication layer, right? You need to be doing, you know, machine learning on actual data and what's going on and does does this does the transaction make sense right does is everything line up within that message itself versus just looking at oh is it this is it a legit sender because you know we have, we've had a cases here at area one where we've seen an attacker in an account where like hey this account's been breached and the other parties are you know fully unaware that this has happened and you know they're they're trying to initiate changes to a payroll system, uh, trying to wire money to someone, things of that nature. So you know you do need to have really great security analytics to detect those sorts of uh, changes. 
Yeah, man. Look, I'm excited about this topic. All right, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break here. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram at searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family and your favorite social media platform. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Chief Security Officer and Co-Founder of Area One Security, Mr. Blake Darchet. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Chief Security Officer and Co-Founder of Area 1 Security, Mr. Blake Darshay. All right, buddy. So let's shift to cloud email specifically. Everyone's moving. If they haven't already to the cloud, especially if they ever work from home, it's going to happen, right? Office 365, everything else, G Suite. Right? What are the biggest security challenges you hear from customers who are migrating or have recently migrated to Office 365 or Gmail? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the challenges I hear is, you know, these customers sign up for these services, um, they're sold a bill of goods by those vendors, and then they find out, hey, you know what, this what the security features don't seem to be working the way we expect we're, you know, being attacked. People are trying to hack us just like before. So I think one of the, you know, one of the challenges is, you know, if you were to build a house, uh, you know, you don't let your builder run your security system. But in the case of cloud email systems, cloud email security or cloud emails, we see, in fact, these a lot of users letting the builder, i.e., the vendor that designed the system, actually running the security of it, and then they're surprised when it fails. You know, you can't necessarily count on the developer of the software to secure the software. If we, if you were to count on that, you know, you wouldn't need a, any endpoint detection and response software on an endpoint. You know, you wouldn't need a firewall because you know, there'd be nothing bad coming at you on the network, right? So, you know, if you look at that in that regard, you know, you start realizing, hey, you need multiple layers of security as true defense and depth has always stated. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, man. I mean, look, you always got to have their checks and balances in place, right? We got to trust but verify in everything we do, right? So, I mean, what, what, are, what are the benefits of cloud-native email security versus on-prem email gateways? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, we look at the uh, Hillary Clinton fiasco um, from the last election with her email server as a great example of probably what not to do. And that is, unless you have a a whole bunch of trained security practitioners, they can sit there and monitor and really secure your on-prem email system, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that, right? If you don't have that. And you know, the big companies just have a lot of staff and money committed to trying to secure those systems. And so they're generally able to do that at a cheaper, more economical way. I know a lot of people like running their own data and it's fine to want to do that, but you know, you really got to put in the time and effort and it just becomes a logistical, uh, you know, problem to be able to do that. And it costs a lot of money and a lot of CIOs today, they just don't want to spend the money in those areas. Uh, they'd rather realign those resources for, you know, go to market activities or, you know, some other infrastructure modernization where they're going to see more value for the money. Yeah, man. So, so let's talk a little bit about them. What's the difference in the architecture or deploying the cloud email security for like Office 365 or Gmail versus the traditional email gateway? 
Yeah, we tend to see clouds, the cloud side of email security be a little more um, streamlined than some of the on-prem uh, routing and things like that of that nature that have occurred in the past, right? So, you know, from a cloud MTA, you can do quite a bit of routing and quite a bit of things. They might just route, it might just operate a little bit differently. And we look at a lot of the on-prem stuff, you know, there can be a data center failure. So you have to have, you know, X amount of systems that are prepared to hold data in another data center. Where with the cloud, you don't really have to do that in the same manner. And so you just end up, there's a lot of cost savings uh, and there's just a lot of uh, complexity eliminated. And as we know, complexity really is the problem in security, right? Yeah, I mean, we're always trying to find ways to simplify, especially now, right? I mean, it gets, it gets crazy. So what about companies that, are, that have a hybrid cloud approach to email, you know, especially when you've got, you're rolling out cloud email and you've still got some parts of the company that are, you know, lagging behind or you're still going through the journey? Yeah, so, I mean, we see that and, uh, you know, hopefully you have a plan to fully migrate. We, we see some customers where they kind of just get stuck and they don't know what to do. And it seems like they don't plan to finish migration. But, you know, I think if you plan to migrate, you can eliminate a lot of that complexity we just talked about and really, you know, avoid more downtime in the future uh, and any sort of problem like that. So it just streamlines things. Do you see, like, any differences between, like, GCP and AWS, like from a cloud provider perspective in terms of, you know, making cloud email security better? What are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, we see, you know, we use both of these services at Area One to provide value to our customers. Um, typically, we see Amazon as really competitive uh, in terms of some of their infrastructure uh, offerings. So, you know, EC2 has been really great. They've got a really refined set of capabilities there. But, you know, when we look at the software side of that and move away from, you know, infrastructure as a service over, say, SaaS, software as a service, we really see some of Google's offerings really taking off, right? Things like Google BigQuery, um, things like Google Data Store slash Firebase. These, these services are really, really cool. They scale really well. They are run really cheaply. Google Bigtable, another great example. Uh, and, you know, Amazon doesn't often, can't often match them, right? So Amazon can, Amazon and Google can match each other on the infrastructure side pretty easily. And they'll say, I'm better here, I'm better there, and whatever. But on the software side, we've really seen Google's offerings really top that of Amazon uh, and also of Microsoft, to be perfectly honest with you. Well, that's interesting insight, right? I mean, the audience should really be taking note. I mean, that's, it, you know, you're, you're, you're analyzing a lot of these, you know, a lot of the cloud providers on a daily basis. So I appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts there. Um, but what would you say to companies that, that think the native security of Office 365 or Gmail would be enough to secure their users? Yeah, I think uh, to those companies, I would say how many phishing attacks has your users reported? How many BEC attacks and how much money have you lost from those attacks to really answer that question? And if you look at where the data will lead you in some POVs we've done with customers, we've seen a customer say, hey, you know, we had no idea there was this much bad stuff going on. We were only getting, you know, one report of something bad for every 10 that were detected. And, you know, you see this 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 or 30 to 1 ratio of reported items to what's actually occurring. And, you know, it's pretty, pretty concerning. And so, you know, I think you look at the, the business impact, the economic impact of that uh, to really drive that on. So in terms of like, Companies assessment of their vulnerabilities and their risk landscape related to email, like, you know, do they, 
do they still think, do you still think people need more, right? Um, for email security than just what they've been getting? I mean, what, what's, what do they need to do? What's the stack? What's the, what should the stack look like? Yeah. So, you know, we tend to like the cloud email stack today. Um, you know, we do recommend setting up DMARC, uh, although, you know, there's cases where DMARC is just not as good as SPF. We've had cases where, you know, an SPF record's failing and DMARC's passing and we're having a vendor or a customer tell us, hey, you know, uh, there's something wrong. Well, no, there's nothing wrong. SPF tends to be, you know, more authentic and can validate things sometimes better than the DMARC standard. So, you know, we do like DMARC, SPF, DKIM, all three should really be deployed. But on top of that, you know, you need to deploy two-factor authentication. You need to deploy uh, an additional email security service in there to really try to narrow the attack surface. And, you know, also provide visibility, right? You know, the big cloud providers, they don't provide great visibility on some of the attacks. You know, Google tends to reject emails that they think are bad instead of routing them in for the Intel value. And if you go look at the Intel value alone, there's a lot of intelligence value knowing who's coming after you, what kind of attacks you're facing and what those attacks look like. And I think uh, that that Intel value is often really understated. So, so let's talk about that for a second. And feel free to stop wherever you need to on the Intel side here, you know, based on what you're doing from a, as a company or your background. But, you know, I feel like that's just an underutilized tool in the toolkit for a lot of companies. Um, what are you guys doing that you're able to share that might differentiate that you just don't see most people do? Yeah, so we use a high-speed web crawler. We also use a series of uh, network active sensors to detect attacks and try to triangulate attacks and detect them in more real time uh, and load all that data in with our models to determine an attack is occurring. So, you know, a lot of preemptive uh, techniques in there, um, but then some reactive techniques as well, right? You got to have preemption and then you got to have some re reactive attacks. But, you know, I think intelligence uh, itself is often undervalued. We've had some customers, some of the largest customer, largest companies in America with a security team of 100 people. And we were showing them reports and say, hey, you know, you have a, one of your partners is breached. Uh, you know, the Chinese government's inside their network. They're trying to steal this data from them. You know, you, you have a VPN link, you told us, you know, to this customer or this uh, partner of yours. You know, how do you, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, their legal team couldn't figure out what to do about it. So they couldn't even tell their partner that the partner had been compromised. So now you have a situation where the U.S. companies got a possible vulnerability from a foreign entity, from another foreign partner, right? And they could get hacked at any moment over a trusted secure link, all because they don't know really how to handle that, right? So if you look at intelligence and how do you take intel and actually synthesize it into action, it's really challenging. And no one has figured it out. To this day, very few people can do it outside of the government. There's just very few and it just becomes costly and it becomes a real hassle. And that's why we see people often resorting to IOCs, right? When they wanna move back to an IP address or a hash. Well, as you know, Andy, an IP address and a hash is not the only way to stop an attack. Yeah, it's such a, it can be such an expensive proposition and so, even challenging the like resource intensive to stand up and operate um, and at almost times for sort of sometimes little value, depending on where you're getting your sources. Right. And like, it becomes a real trust game, right? How do I know who's working on it, that their data is good. And it's very challenging, man. And, and that's right. I find the stuff that you're doing really interesting. Um, 
and say, so, hey, I, I want it, before we go to another break, man, I want to get your, your take on, you know, the, the recent Twitter hack, you know, any insight you can share there? Yeah. So, you know, I think the Twitter hack, the real, the real question I think a lot of people have about the Twitter hack is, you know, how is it possible that these tools existed for a internal Twitter user to basically take over all these accounts and operate from these accounts? I mean, what kind of oversight of controls was going on here, right? Where these tools were ever created to allow that capability. Uh, you know, as a Twitter user, I think that should frighten us all because you basically don't know who's behind those accounts. You don't need two-factor authentication if you're on the back end uh, manipulating the system. So, you know, I think it's just a, a really great question uh, to look at Twitter's entire security strategy and how they're trying to secure themselves. But it really, really begs a lot of questions about the security of large entities for something like that to happen. Yeah, no, no doubt. But now let's, let's flip it around, man. You know, you're, you're a celebrity in the cybersecurity space, right? Let's, you know, let's just get right after it, right? So what, should, what would you give advice to like non-technical users, celebrities or not, know about social media phishing risk? What do they need to know? Sure, yeah. I think there's a lot of risk there. I think don't believe everything posted on social media. Um, if you hadn't already heard that, uh, a lot of Twitter users figured that out when they started wiring money to that uh, fake Twitter, to the uh, Twitter attack there. Uh, but you know, you got to be careful, you got to pay attention. Uh, and you can can't just trust random people sending you messages, right? And go look at the Jeff Bezos attack, right? Where, you know, it's alleged that Bezos received this file on um, uh, whatever messaging platform that was. Uh, or was it was it a WhatsApp from Facebook, right? So you got the WhatsApp, isn't that right, Andy? I forgot to go look it back up, man. Yeah, I think it's WhatsApp, but you know, you look at that, right? And this guy, Jeff Bezos, he thinks he's getting a legit uh, message from you know somebody in Saudi, and he's getting malware instead, right? You just don't know who's on the other end, even if it's a legitimate device anymore. So, so we've, you know, I'd love to get your take on this. I mean, we've talked a lot about leveraging social media for targeting purposes uh, on the show. Um, what's your take? you know, on, on, uh, from an adversary perspective, you know, being able to put, you know, the attack profile targeting packages together based on social media. What's, what's your take there? I mean, I love it for LinkedIn, right? Uh, LinkedIn is the greatest intelligence collection and analysis tool ever created. Uh, you know, Facebook to a lesser degree, but really LinkedIn, if you're trying to target business users, it's just phenomenal. All the data is there. You know, it's perfect. You can get full access to all sorts of things and really just crank the users. And, we you know, we saw that case of that FBI indictment where a user, uh, you know, got in trouble with the FBI for doing exactly that. He was distilling down LinkedIn stuff and then LinkedIn's telling him who else to go look at uh, to try to recruit. I mean, they've made, it's basically automatic uh, human recruiting, right, for insider threat. Yeah, it's scary sometimes, man. It's scary. Be careful what you put online, everybody, but it's, you know, there's still some safe ways to do it. Just make sure you, make sure you follow the right rules. All right, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, Chief Security Officer and Co-Founder of Area One Security, Mr. Blake Darshay. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, 
live and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, Chief Security Officer and Co-Founder of Area 1 Security, Mr. Blake Darchet. Blake, last segment, man, we were talking a little bit about the Twitter hack, uh, but right after the Twitter hack, you released a security alert that detailed a scam exploiting the Gates Foundation brand, where the attacker set up a malicious domain closely related to the GatesFoundation.org site. Is DMARC and email authentication the best way to prevent messages containing malicious domains from getting delivered or what? Yeah, so, you know, I think DMARC has its purpose in trying to stop direct, uh, you know, uh, impersonators where they're impersonating the exact domain. The problem is that ICANN's made it just so cheap to buy domain names and that there's just so many TLDs now available uh, that you can basically register anything anytime you want. The other day I was looking for a domain to register for a webinar uh, and I accidentally uh, looked up the wrong domain and I accident and I actually found 
a legitimate uh, available, you know, non-registered domain and registered it. And it was perfect for my webinar use. So, you know, the problem is it's just too easy to do uh, lookalike domain names and impersonate people on the internet. I mean, are you finding that same thing to be the case for social media, right? I mean, just the impersonation piece, right? I mean, taking over people's accounts. Like what advice would you give people um, to make sure that they own their online presence? Yeah, you know, you, it's very difficult, right? You know, you have all these people trying to connect with you. You know, I don't know about you, Andy, but I get seem to get a ton of LinkedIn requests from people. And oftentimes I don't know who they are. I wonder if I should be accepting these requests. And sometimes you'll see that, hey, this account looks like it only has like two people uh, that have ever seen it. And it looks like a new account. And you're like, what is this? You know, some of those are attackers, people trying to, you know, get close to you. And there's a lot of random people out there that, you know, will connect with you that may not really be people at all. They might be a bot. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just very, very difficult to uh, validate who those people are. You never know who they are. Yeah, man, it's a tough one. I don't know about you, but, you know, my kids truly don't think that I'm cool at all, but at least, uh, you know, on LinkedIn or whatever, I, I'm somewhat cool, I think. But, man, at home, I, got, I get no love from the kids. They, they'll, never, they'll never buy it if we tell them we, were, we had people trying to hit us up. <laughs> anyway, like, the election's coming right around the corner, man. And I, I know you've been working with political candidates for over a year now, right? We're just a few months away from election day. Are you starting to see a recent tick, any upticks in phishing? Like what's going on there? Yeah, you know, I think phishing is an always problem, right? So you're always going to be experiencing phishing. There's always going to be attackers sending attacks. Um, and, you know, it's, it's often difficult to derive direct trends. You know, I see people often making statements about, oh, we're seeing an uptick. We're seeing an uptick. You know, you're seeing an uptick from what? From a month ago, a day ago, a year ago? Are the attackers not attacking some days? I mean, the most attackers that are doing this in a professional capacity are always being paid to attack people. So, you know, I'm like generally dubious on uptick claims, especially, uh, or even downtick claims where, you know, it's possible the attacker just changed enough where it's more difficult to observe them. And I think oftentimes security practitioners, you know, fall into data bias where they, you know, look at their data and they think, well, they can derive all these interesting conclusions from their own data set. Well, it's not always able, it's always possible to do that because you may not have enough data to do that. And there's very few companies that do have the data to be able to even do that. So I'm pretty dubious on all of those claims, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's a great assumption, right? Because I think it's very easy to, I mean, look, we, you and I have been doing this for a really long time. So for us, it's, it's, it's easy to think that. But like, what, what advice would you give people then who are focusing in on, say, oh, I got to know what the next survey or report says, and I got to use that to convince my board or convince, you know, an executive leader on how important security is? Like, it, you know, what's your take there on people having to use external stats like that to kind of tell the story? Yeah, you know, I think this is a great area where ISACs can come in, right? And really understanding, you know, if, if, a, if you're a part of an ISAC, an information sharing analysis organization, right? And you're aware of some other incident that occurred in some of the peer industry and in a peer company, you know, that's really where the value is in understanding those attacks, the attack surface, what happened, what the damages were, how much did it cost, really using that sort of peer-to-peer -peer guidance to really drive that message home versus just, you know, statistics on the internet. There's, a, you know, DOD would come out with statistics about how many times someone tried to like ping them a day or end map them. I mean, like 
really? Are these statistics, the statistics that we're using to derive security value is somebody and mapping your computer? I just don't see the general value of that, right? And, you know, I'm looking for quantifiable business statistics, right? Like what would happen? How much would it cost? What, then what would the damages be? What would the attack surface be? And, you know, looking at that more scope of lens. Yeah, I love that you talk about damages. It has been a large, you know, shift. We've talked about it a lot here on the show in terms of measuring cyber or cyber risk in dollars and cents. And I've heard it from my peers a lot now in the industry where, you know, we're, the effort around, you know, communicating cyber in, in financial terms um, and damages is obviously the, um, you know, one way to do it. Um, and so, yeah, we interested to see where, how, how, how much that takes off over the next, you know, six months. Um, but man, I, I wanted to follow up to the, you know, the election conversation. Um, you know, are, are the phishing, you know, do you think that the, the phishing emails that are coming in are really uh, nation state attacks for political reasons. You know, I think there's a lot of different attacks that come into a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Right. And, you know, determining it's a nation state uh, has actually gotten much harder over the last five years or so because attackers have really migrated to using malware. That's really kind of like an AK 47 of malware, right? You got like plug X, you got a, you, previous to that, you had Poison Ivy. You know, anyone that using Plug X, everyone's like, hey, that's China. Well, it might not be China. You know, now everyone's using uh, these, you know, pen test frameworks. And, you know, with pen test frameworks like, you know, um, uh, Kali Linux and uh, some, of these other, some of these other tools, you know, it's just very difficult to quantify, you know, who the attacker is. Everyone looks the same. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everyone's focused on nation state attacks, but you know, some of these non-nation state attacks, right? Where, you know, you got three guys uh, in Nigeria launching an attack, pulling down a hundred million dollars a year. I mean, think about that. That's not a nation state, it's three guys. We've had a case where, you know, we had, a, we had this group of Chinese operators, about five to seven guys, they're causing hundreds of millions of dollars in damage, the seven guys, right? And you know, people are saying, hey, that's not the government. Well, it doesn't matter if it's the government. It might be a contractor for the government. You know, where do you draw the line, right, on that attribution side? And so it gets complicated, uh, and you have to look at damages again, right? And if five guys are causing the damage of a 500 guys, then, you know, hey, that's no different than a government. Yeah, look, you know, we always say if towards for attribution, right, we want to be as close to the threat as possible, um, and certainly, you know, that I think that's a mindset you've seen to carry on out from the time in the government to the to the private sector. And then obviously, as an entrepreneur, um, what, what advice would you give, you know, fellow service men and women, right, who are, you know, fighting the fight in the government that are looking to make the transition out into either the private sector or into a startup? Um, you know, from an enterprise view or, uh, you know, a startup. And I'd love to get your take on just that transition for folks. And I know we, our audience enjoys hearing it. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think you got to really be interested in, you know, doing everything. You got to kind of be interested in just doing it all from a jack of all trades on security. If you want to make that leap, um, you know, in the government, 
you know, you often end up with these really, really, really big organizations where, you know, this person analyzes this specific thing for this specific country only. And, you know, that just doesn't happen in the private side as much, right? And you start getting into more broad, hey, you got to, you know, you're handling all these security issues. So you got to be willing to really step outside of your comfort zone, I think is, is the number one thing I would say. And, uh, you know, pick up new skills, uh, be willing to fail a little bit, you know, while still succeeding. And, really understanding, you know, you don't know everything. You'll never know everything. There's always more to know. And you got to be willing to accept that as well. That was funny. When I left, uh, when I was leaving the government, I had a, a friend of mine over at NSA actually. And he was saying, you know, he's like, well, you know, you left, when you left, you know, your schooling and you went and became a police officer. How'd you do? How'd that work out? I'm like, what, fine. And you left the police department and you became a secret service agent. How'd that work out? I'm like, Fine. He's like, what do you think is going to happen when you leave here and go to the private sector? I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> right. So just having that confidence to make the leap and be willing to fail, I think. I love that advice, brother. I really do. Um, well, hey, man, I, I appreciate you really you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eddie. All right, folks, it's time to bounce up and out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 